We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode number 60. Our guest today is the owner and founder of The Tack Hack, which is an online marketplace where she offers premium equestrian brands at discounted prices. This is so fascinating because I have always been a thrifting girl and loving a good deal. And 90% of her products are new with tags. So you can still look amazing and feel amazing for a lot cheaper. So here to talk about that today is our guest, Lauren Garvey. So I would love to hear, I mean, obviously I want to hear all about the tag hack, but first, uh, how did you first get into the equestrian world? I went to horse camp and it was like the rest was history. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> I was, oh gosh, like 11 maybe. Okay. Um, cool. And uh, my dad always says his biggest regret in life was sending me to Black River Riding Camp in <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> um, it was definitely the gateway drug to this whole world. Totally. Amazing. So you started with riding camp. And then, um, were you wanting to buy a horse? I mean, were you like completely a hundred percent all in? Did you, were you showing, what did that look like? Well, they had this program. So they were a summer camp and they had this program where for a dollar, you could take home one of their horses for the winter. And so, so after a couple of years, I convinced my dad, like, you know, dad, it's a horse for a dollar. This is an amazing deal. <laughs> and, um, so we, we took to Sham home for the winter. Uh-huh. <laughs> Love it. My favorite horse at camp. And, um, yeah, the rest was history. I started taking riding lessons, um, outside of Detroit, Michigan, um, got really into hunter jumper world and, um, eventually, you know, had the opportunity to buy my first pony. And it was just, I mean, it was the best. It was one of those great sort of riding childhoods. So cool. When you um, then were getting older and uh, going to school and then eventually starting a career, what did that look like with your riding life? Yeah, sure. So um, by the time I graduated high school, um, I was showing in, well, actually at that point, the amateur owner hunters. um, And the deal always was, and I think it was you know, the right deal. Um, my parents always told me like, you're on your own horses after you leave for college, you know, like I was so blessed to be able to do the sport and travel and show. Um, and I knew that that was not going to last forever. So, um, I went to college knowing I'd better work my tail off if I ever wanted to be able to afford horses again. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to Barnard college in New York city, which is the women's college at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, definitely hustled to get some key internships, um, build up my resume, um, worked in finance for a couple of, well, no, about a year and a half before the market tanked and, um, decided to go to law school. Actually. Um, my dad was a lawyer. It's kind of what I grew up with and, um, sort of felt like this is something I could really enjoy that plays to my skill set and would ultimately allow me to afford horses again someday. Totally. totally. <laughs> yeah. So, so I did that. I graduated. Um, I practiced, I was a litigator in Chicago and then moved back to New York city, um, and practiced there for a bit. Um, 
but sort of it, it, I kind of fell out of love with the practice of law for a lot of reasons or sort of like some gendered issues that I experienced. Hmm. Um, and also just kind of like, to be honest, um, wasn't really that passionate about it. Okay. And I always really wanted to feel, I love to work. I really, I'm just one of those people and, um, really wanted to feel excited about going to work every day. And, um, a lot of the people around me in court or even in my own office kind of showed up to work with what I call like dead zombie eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not a fun environment to work in on a daily yeah. basis. You know, they just, um, so was really fortunate to have an amazing group of female friends in New York City who were working in fashion um, and who loved their jobs and who were, quite frankly, making more money than I was as a practicing lawyer. Yeah, And they really inspired me to think about like, you know, changing things up and, um, and pursuing a career in business. So that's so cool. That's- that was the path. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So you were trying to kind of navigate what you wanted to do with your career. Um, at what point did, um, horses kind of come back into the picture? Yeah. So, um, I think a lot of people can relate to this. Um, while I was building my career, while I was going to law school, I mean, I was not able to afford riding. Mm -hmm. Um, I was living in New York city. That's not cheap. Um, and even as a lawyer couldn't afford, you know, after rent and, you know, my social life in New York couldn't really afford to, to ride. So, um, I left the sport for about 15 years and it was something that I always really wanted to return to. Um, and it wasn't until after business school, I went to um, university of Michigan for business school that I started taking riding lessons again. And it was like coming home truly. Hmm. Um, I had, um, you know, I had the chance to, we actually were able to retire my junior hunter, um, to a farm that we have in Northern Michigan. So I still had him in my world, which was really nice, but, um, certainly wasn't training. Okay. Got it. Um, so then tell me a little bit about the kind of the background of how you started the tack hack and what was, uh, maybe a need that you saw or where were you at in your life right now? Um, at that point when you were thinking that this needed to start? Sure. So, um, like I said, I mean, even as a practicing lawyer, um, I wasn't able to afford the sport at the yeah. level that I wanted to, to do it, you know, like totally. I really, I love training. Like it's just, I, I am very competitive with myself and really love sort of sinking into something and progressing at it. Like I didn't want to just kind of trail ride. I wanted to compete, you know? So, um, so I was not able to afford to do the sport at that level. Yeah. And after business school, I moved to Northern Michigan to job hunt. Actually, I was looking for some pretty niche roles in New York and to pass the time and kind of ease my anxiety. Totally. Um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to check to see if there is a barn nearby. And sure enough, I mean, just totally lucked out. Um, there is a fantastic show barn called Northern Pines. Melissa Hurt is the trainer. Um, it's right up by me. And, um, fortunately she has a lesson program. She has a great, a pretty robust sales program. And, um, has a great lesson program as well. And so I started taking lessons again hmm. and the TACAC was sort of born out of 
A, like having to take 15 years away from the sport because it's just so expensive and B, coming back to it as sort of a returning rider and just, you know, like, girl, I did not fit into my little 16 inch satellite (laughs) or like, you know, like certainly didn't keep my old, like dry clean only like from the early 2000s. So like I needed to refresh all my gear. Yeah. It's crazy. uh, I think, I think maybe around the same time that you like kind of within your 15 years, I think I took my four years off during college and it. it was wild. I feel like I came back and everything was different. Just like everything. Because I'm Although like, you, okay, this will not work. This will not work. Perfect. Do you know what though? I You will have to pry my Lycrochet crochet gloves out of my cold dead Yes. Hand. I know that those are not the thing anymore, <sighs> people, but like, I still love them. Do you have like the light tan and, and ivory ones? Yes. I love course. those things. Yes. They last forever too. I garden in them. I do everything. I love those gloves. <laughs> Multi-purpose, see, they're worth the price. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, for sure. Riding's so expensive. So what was, I mean, that was that kind of the driving force as far as the tack hack is concerned. Yeah. So I started, I just needed, I needed to refresh all my gear. I needed a new saddle. I needed to, you know, I just, in, um, at the time I thought I was going to be moving back to New York in three months and sort of was like, well, I don't want to spend a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't really find any great sites that are sort of like Nordstrom rack for the industry. Right. Um, and I was like, well, that's, that's weird. Like that should exist. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. like we know that expense is a major pain point in the industry. And so just being sort of like an MBA who likes doing a lot of research, uh-huh. I started doing, I was like, well, I wonder how big the industry is and did a little bit of market research and realized that actually in terms of impact on GDP, this industry is as large as the US golf industry. Like, wow. okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing some research into like, you know, some competitive research, like what exists, what doesn't exist in terms of the discount space and sort of like interesting and mm-hmm kind of like, it just got to a point where I was like, this is like a really compelling opportunity. Um, Great Lakes Equestrian Festival is in my backyard. Like Mm -hmm. I can literally see it from my backyard. (laughs) And so um, I did, I reconnected with some folks at the horse show that summer and um, learned that a lot of the independent retailers who pop up at these horse shows have a major problem with overstock and what to do with it and right. limited room in their trailers. And there are a lot of issues with discounting in terms of what they're allowed to discount and how mm-hmm. much. And I was like, you know what? This is crazy. These are all signs. Like I'm just doing this. And so right. I started the tech act. Wow. Amazing. So tell me, let's give me a little rundown of the tech hack because it's not really, I mean, I'm sure you get the word like consignment around sure. your, your brand a lot, which it's not, but maybe, maybe try to like debunk some of these, these misconceptions. Some of the tech hack myths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so consignment's a funny word. Um, cause I think people think consignment and they automatically think used. Mm-hmm. Um, we do sell some pre-owned items on our site. Um, We've been pretty successful scaling our saddle side of the business. And then we do um, some premium uh, pre-owned apparel uh, sales as well. Um, But consignment is really just a business model, right? It just Mm -hmm. means that I'm not purchasing inventory upfront. I'm paying for it after it sells. And so actually 95% of my inventory is brand new with tags. 
and is sourced from independent special re- specialty retailers across the country, as well as premium equestrian brands. Got so it. we do consignment, um, but most of our inventory is actually brand new. Cool. Awesome. So it's basically for certain brands who have a whole bunch of extra stock that they themselves don't think that they'll be able to sell. So they communicate with you and you sell it on the site. Yep. So it's brands and and that's right. So for whatever reason, um, you know, like perfect example right now, you know, we're, it's what June 23rd, this Mm -hmm. is post COVID we're in the midst of it right now. Um, we're seeing, um, a big shakeup in the industry. A lot of people aren't ordering their usual summer and fall, uh, orders of goods. So Mm -hmm. what happens? Well, it either gets stuck at the factory level or at the brand level in terms of people having overstock. So, um, depending on the inventory, I might, I might buy it outright, or I might offer a consignment opportunity to the brand. Um, most of our inventory though, comes from retailers. So I work with a lot of the retailers that folks shop from at horse shows across the country and I help them move things along that, you know, uh, uh, for example, let's say like, a a jacket might not do well in California in front of an audience in California, but it might do really well in the Midwest where we have crappy weather. Right. (laughs) Right. So, um, I work with, I work with a variety of folks and I, and I, like I said, I do consignment and then I also do some purchasing outright of overstock. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. So what are some of the brands that you offer through the tech hack? So, um, I really focus on higher end brands. Um, I sort of, I think the psychology of our sport is that people want to fit in. They want to feel like Georgina or Jessica, Mm -hmm. um, but might not have the budget. Um, so I really focus on the higher end brands because, um, I think that it helps folks feel like they're fitting in at the horse show. And even if they're like, it sort of flips this idea of, I think there's a lot of shame in our industry, to be honest, around um, not having as much, feeling like maybe financially you don't fit in at the horse show or at Mm -hmm. the barn. And so I focus on the premium brands and and sourcing, you know, really quality, quality apparel, quality tack for less because I want people to be able to walk into the barn with their head held high and sort Mm -hmm. of flip that shame around and be like, I'm, I'm, this is nothing to be ashamed of. I'm savvy. I found this at a discount, you know? Yeah. So that's why I focus on, on those brands. Okay, cool. Awesome. Was there ever a thought um, that kind of crossed your mind about creating your own line? Um, it's something I think about a lot now. Um, the, you know, the biggest problem with my business model is that you're always feeding the beast, right? So mm-hmm. I don't have the ability to go to a brand and say like, oh, I'm out of that great shirt or go to a retailer and say like, hey, like, wow, did those breeches sell well for you? Like, please send more on my way. You know, like part of part of what people, it's like a treasure hunt experience on my website. So yeah you might not see a deep size run of size 24 tailored sportsman's come in. I might just get one or two. Mm -hmm. So, so part of my job, and it's actually quite fun is thinking like how I fill those sizes, how I fill those products. And it's gets to be quite social, which I enjoy. And, um, but yes, to your point, I think that part of the long 
short-term strategic solution to filling in those, those size and product gaps will be perhaps a house label. Awesome. I want to take a minute to talk to you about one of my favorite equestrian marketing agencies, and that is Meraki Creative Group. Meraki Creative Group is a global growth acceleration agency working with brands in the equestrian and the outdoor lifestyle space. So whether you are an athlete, a brand, or provide a service or a product, Meraki Creative Group is totally for you if you're looking to expand upon branding, digital marketing, graphic design, web design, photography, growth and strategy. PR, media, marketing expansion, brand representation, you name it, Meraki Creative Group is totally for you. So you can learn more at merakicreative.ca, that is M-E-R-A-K-I creative.ca, or you can reach out to Britt over Instagram, and her Instagram is M-C-G, as in Meraki Creative Group, dot B-R-I-T, Britt. So that's M-C-G dot Britt. All right, let's get back to the episode. So tell me a little bit about kind of the process from when you first get the product to when it is available to customers. Yeah. So um, we do all of our product photography in-house. Wow. It's fun. But, um, you know, I live in, I live in kind of an artsy area. A lot of, a lot of really creative folks move up here. So um, I've got a lot of talent locally in terms of photography and it's just been fun because they're not horse people and they always look at these things and they're like, what's this strappy do? (laughs) 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 So it's fun. So we, so we get items in, um, everything gets assigned its own individual skew because we're Mm -hmm. aggregating from different, from different places across the country. So it, what might look like, um, you know, like if I have some trophy hunter breaches on my website, they might be coming from 15 different retailers. So everything has to have its own skew. It's complicated, but that makes it fun. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> and totally. then, um, it's edited and posted on the website. Um, uh, which is why, um, I invested a lot recently in upgrading our website so that people can hit those filters and, and see if we've folded in any, any fresh new sizes. Mm-hmm. And awesome. Um, what, Tell me like a little bit about the um, saddles and kind of that avenue of the tack hat because I feel like that is a lot different than apparel and accessories and involves a little bit more um, maybe communication process or, or being really specific with your description. How do you how do you do all of that? Yeah, so um, my approach to the saddle side of the business actually kind of started it starts a little earlier than that even. Um, so I designed my own shipping system for saddles. Cause I feel like there's a lot of anxiety around like what box size do I use to ship my saddle? Should I fill it with packing peanuts? Like how mm-hmm. do I make sure that this $3,000 item doesn't get damaged in the mail? And like, so, um, I actually developed my own little system called saddle ship. So okay. you, so, so people can go to my website and request this kit and it, it, a box arrives with everything they need to confidently ship their saddle for free. So it, it also comes with a prepaid shipping label. Um, so that's kind of where it starts just sort of like easing that anxiety around shipping a saddle. Um, so we, we receive it. Um, we sort of, we appraise it. We give people, um, uh, there's like a blue book system for appraising saddles. Um, so we give them sort of like a spectrum of where we think we should post it. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously with the saddles, it's very, very specific in terms of 
the different dimensions. I did like a, I did a saddle training workshop in Maryland to kind uh-huh. of up my knowledge, um, through, uh, Hastelo. And, um, yeah, it's, it's harder with the dress- team dressage is much more particular about mm. sizes and dimensions I find than team hunter jumper. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those require a little bit more detail, um, just because they get very granular about, um, very specific measurements in a way that I don't think our hunter jumper community does, but, um, but yeah, it's a fun, it's, it's a fun part of the business. I have to tell you, like, I just nerd out over these saddles. They're beautiful. Every mm-hmm. time I get one in, it's just like, I marvel at the craftsmanship behind these objects. It's totally. incredible. Yeah. When you do receive stuff, let's say on a consignment end or a, um, as you say on your website, a pre-loved, um, mm-hmm. you know, avenue, what are some of the things that you look at to determine whether or not they're a good fit for the tech hack? My whole thing is like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be something that's not eBay or not Facebook marketplace, the whole idea of running a tough door when it comes to the pre-loved apparel um, specifically is that I want my people to feel confident that if they're buying something used on my site, it's beautiful and no one will ever know the mm-hmm. difference. Like it should be, it should be like you're buying something close to new. Um, and people should have that confidence that I've taken the time or someone on my team has taken the time to touch it, feel it, inspect it, make sure there are no holes, no stains. I mean, it really should like I said, the whole point of this entire thing is being able to walk confidently into any horse show in the country and feel like you belong there and can hold your head up high. So, um, so I'm particular, I really am. Um, (laughs) so if it's stained, if it's at all torn, if it's faded, if it's not current, if it's, you know, it's, I, I have no qualms about rejecting it, which is why we've Mm -hmm. (laughs) recently tightened up our accepted brands and items policy. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I'm particular. Yeah. And I think that's good. I mean, I think it really narrows in on your, your branding and your clients and, and your clients return because they know exactly what to expect. And, um, you have the same kind of standard for everything that you offer. Sure. Well, I mean, as equestrians, we, we do have high standards. Like it's kind of part of our industry. It's like, there's like, you know, we, <laughs> we're a tough crowd. Uh-huh. Totally. <laughs> Oh, yep, exactly. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, uh, we talked about saddles. Tell me a little bit about kind of the, the product blend of TACAC. Sure. So, um, part of what makes my job so fun is it's always changing. So my product blend on the website today will not be the same as it is a week from now. And it Mm -hmm. goes back to that what is sort of a problem with my business model, not a problem, but just a fact of my business model, which is like, we don't know what we're going to get and we don't know when we're going to get it. And we can never promise that like next week we're going to have Edgewood bridles. We might not have Edgewood bridles back in stock until six months from now. Like, who knows? Right. So, um, so we do, I do try to keep, I mean, I sell everything from horse blankets to, breaches for men, women, and children to, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's what I have, um, at at any given time, but I do try to stock across categories and I sort of look at what the data is telling me in terms of, okay, people are really wanting this and I'm light on it. So like, it's time to start hunting down, Mm -hmm. you know, more Edgewood bridles, for example. Uh, so 
Yeah. Which is why like it's, it's, it is kind of a treasure hunt. Like it's that new arrivals page is sort of a great place to hit. Um, because it's always changing. And then, um, yeah, you can kind of get a sense, like once it's gone, it's gone. Like you'll see Mm -hmm. on my website, if it says sold out, like it's gone. I don't know when it's going to back in stock, but it makes it fun and interesting and sort of like always evolving. Totally. Absolutely. Um, and obviously you kind of have the power as far as what you want, where you want to price these items, correct? Um, to a certain extent, I mean, so I don't list things at full price on my website. Actually, that's not true. I have one item on my website that's listed at full price and it's um, the Sterling Essentials Leather Starter Kit. I yeah. just love stuff, you guys. I love this product so much. <laughs> um, so I just have like a little sample pack uh, that I sell. That's the only item on my website that's Perfect. full price. <laughs> but otherwise, um, what I take into consideration when I'm pricing something I I think every item on my website starts at at least 20% off of full retail. Nice. So, yeah. so anything on my website, like usually if I can find an MSRP, I will put that there. So I'll show what I'll show people if I can find the data of like mm-hmm. what that item costs full retail. And then you see the TACAC price. Um, and what I consider, so for example, if it's like a current color Toscana breach, like that's hitting the site at 20% off. But if yeah. I get... Um, like for example, I recently did a tack shop deal where I got a lot of hunk coats, like tons of hunk coats. And mm. some of them are, um, old enough that I can no longer find pricing information. So yeah. that means that it's hitting at about 50% or more off of retail. Right. Um, so it's age, it's brand. Um, and that, that's kind of all what gets factored into it. It's also demand. So like if something isn't moving, like gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hitting the clearance page. Totally. That's awesome. I mean, you have amazing brands that you offer. I mean, it's really, I I am always so surprised because I'm like, how is this? Like, how can you do this at such a good price off? And it's literally new with tags. It's so cool. Thank you. Well, it's a lot of hustle, but it's like I said, it's a lot of, it's an industry that's sort of naturally conducive to relationship building and it's, it's, you know, everyone kind of knows each other and it's mm-hmm. about just building those relationships out and being able to offer that product to my customers. And totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Tell me a little bit about an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about. Um, I think actually the part of the industry that I'm really excited about giving, giving more thought to, and that I'm really excited, passionate about is the issue of accessibility. I mean, that's obviously the entire model of my business is built Mm -hmm. on making this sport more accessible. I mean, truly this, I started this because I did work with people when I was practicing law and I'm not, you know, I'm being too hard on lawyers. There are a lot of lawyers I know (laughs) who love their jobs and who feel as passionate about going to work every day as I do. Right. Um, But there are a lot of people who don't and it's not just law. It's a lot of industries. So this whole business is, was founded on this idea of like, there are literally aisles within the bookstore with books called like how to find your passion, Mm -hmm. like how to discover what you love in life. I mean, it's their self, I mean, there's self-help books written about just figuring out what makes you tick. I feel like this industry in this industry, we're so blessed as, as riders, as people who love horses and love spending time with horses and love riding horses. 
in the whole lifestyle. Like mm-hmm. we know what we'd rather be doing other than, you know, than anything, than any other thing on the planet. Like we know what makes us tick. We know what makes us happy, what lights us up. Like we are so lucky that right. we have this passion and it's just about being able to let people live that passion. You know, there's like, there are cost barriers, which is what my business addresses. And then something that I think is exciting that people are starting to talk about more in, in the wake of George Floyd are the structural barriers that, mm-hmm. um, that get in the way of people being able to access this sport, live this sport, continue what I, you know, my tagline for my business is to keep riding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think people are starting to have more really interesting conversations about like, what does it look like to kind of not maybe recreate the industry, but open the industry up a little bit more, shift the industry so that we're, we get more people into our sport. I mean, I think we can all agree, like the more people that are in this sport, the better it is for the industry. Like we certainly don't want our industry to shrink. We want Mm -hmm. it to grow. Um, it's better for everybody. It's better for all of the businesses and in the sport. It's better for happy people who love horses that that they're able to be around them more. So, um, for example, last night I was on a great, um, it was like a great zoom seminar that the plaid horse did, um, sort of addressing a lot of, um, sort of the racial issues that are starting to be talked about more in our, in in our industry, which is really exciting. And there was a lot of really, um, optimistic conversation around like, uh, what are some ways to address the structural issues? You know, is it, uh, I had a really great conversation a couple of months ago with Christy Lake from dreamers and schemers, where we yeah. were talking about like, you know, should there be consulting services to help build up, up down barns so that mm-hmm. there's more of a, a feeder system within our industry to get more people into organized up down programs where they can start, you know, accessing lesson barns and we can really kind of support our lesson barns um, as like a feeder system for the sport. Um, you know, how do we, how do we cheerlead our local circuits? What mm-hmm. role should USAF play in, in building out and supporting local circuits across the country so that the only access point into our sport isn't, you know, like WEF, like right, that's yeah. prohibitively expensive for people. Um, and I'll tell you what, it takes a very strong <laughs> parent to be able to like, I mean, there are people who are successful by any other measure who walk into some of these double A circuit horse shows and feel poor, mm-hmm. you know, and it takes like a, it takes like a certain personality to be like, whatever, I'm just going to do what I can do. And we're going to have fun. Right. Like, how do we support our local, our local circuits to kind of be a place where people can experience the joy of our sport? Um, in a way that works for their budget. So I think a lot of these structural issues are things that are really exciting to think through and to think about like how my business could support that. Um, and to just kind of in general, like, I think people are starting to talk about it more, which is exciting. Totally. I totally agree. I think it's something that, um, you're seeing more and more as it being, kind of acceptable to even have that conversation. I think at first people were maybe a little bit more afraid to, to come out with it because kind of the idea that you were talking about before, everyone wants to, as cliche as it sounds like fit in, but it's true. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, um, 
such a classic and kind of, you know, elitist sport that it's like everyone wants to kind of play the part and, and be a part of the equestrian industry, just like how everyone, you know, else around them is. And if, I mean, a lot of the time deep down, I mean, you're even with top shows and, and circuits that, um, I am with, at my, with my clients, um, you still hear people when, when it, when it comes down to it, they are still talking about how expensive it is. And that's the, you know, the 1% of the 1% even saying that this is ridiculous. This is so expensive. Like who can afford this? So um, it's definitely something that I um, do hear more in conversation. And you're right, kind of looking um, at the practical ways to try to make small changes, like looking at supporting local horse shows and and helping with um, more of the beginner riders and the up-down programs, I think is uh, kind of where we need to start to um, revitalize the sport at the um, beginner and, and local levels as well. Yeah. It's, so it's exciting. I mean, it's your point, like the, the conversations are definitely starting to shift, which is exciting, you know? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Totally. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I love the TAC hack and I think you're doing an amazing thing. And I'm so excited for everyone to, um, if they haven't already to check it out. So where can they find you? They can find me at www.thetachhack.com um, or on social, uh, we're at the TAC hack. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks again, Lauren. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.